I want to start with a story a little bit from the Sandlot. Uh, so it's very much a timely movie for my age group. But uh, in that movie, towards the end of it, uh, Scotty and Benny, two of the kids, um, meet with a guy called a cool old guy, Mr. Myrtle, uh, played by the great James L. Jones. He's a retired baseball player, uh, and uh, he supposedly once knew Babe Ruth personally, and that was like his claim to fame. And he had always dreamed of beating Babe Ruth's home run record. And the storytelling will go as if he was eventually had to retire because um, because of his eyesight, because of something that uh, uh, something that happened to him on the field. And after hearing his life story, Scotty basically assumes he never got to the record because he had lost his eyesight, that that was really the problem. But it's interesting, because if you're um, kind of an observer, particularly as you get older and kind of learn history, you learn that that might not actually be the case, that Scotty's conclusion may not actually be the one that is correct. Because the older viewer might be able to deduce that this African-American man playing at the time of Babe Ruth, wouldn't even be able to allow to play in the major leagues. That there was no way for him, because of history, to actually break Babe Ruth's record, whether he hit more home runs than him or not. It wasn't simply his eyesight that kept him from ever accomplishing the record. It was who James Earl Jones kind of was represented, this, this black character in history. And it's interesting, as you sort of learn history, you sort of go, okay, that part of the story is a little different than I thought. The purpose, the meaning, and why that happened and how that happened is a little different than what I encountered. And I'm going to argue today, as we kind of walk through this section of text, there's going to be parts of it that um, I would argue, as we've done more history, as we've done more archaeology, there's a little bit of a different nuance that I think the story um, should be seen in that um, historically probably isn't as highlighted. But we'll get there as we go, because first I want to deal with some of the surrounding texts before we get to the Lord's Prayer itself. Because at first, there's this teaching around praying and fasting, and um, it seems like there's ways that Jesus wants to critique how all the people are praying and fasting. And this is coming off the heels on uh, teaching on generosity just before this, uh, in the previous section, where Jesus does the same about how uh, certain people are being generous. And he uses the term hypocrite. Now in the Greek, Historically, in their time, that word simply means actor. Um, we carry with it all the baggage of people who like say one thing but do another and things like that, but it simply means actor. Now, actors can be people that feel happy and act happy, but they're doing it for the performance of it. And I think the same is true in this text, because Jesus is critiquing people that are praying publicly, so they're doing the act. They're not just saying, hey, people should pray. They're actually praying. But the reason, the purpose behind it is so that others would see them. So when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. So these so-called actors, and, and likely he's referring to the Pharisees. Truly, I say to you, they have received a reward. So if you're an actor, and when you finish the show, what happens? Everybody applauds you, and you get your reward for that. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, this is where idioms um, matter. So it says uh, in the text, go to your room and shut the door. Some probably have translations that say, like, go to your closet. Like, you have a prayer closet. You have this private prayer space. But this is definitely a, a bit of a Jewish idiom in history. And let me show you what I think there's actually happening. Um, 
I did at one point have a Jewish prayer shawl, but it has disappeared. Uh, so this will be a, a representative of it. And it's not that much different in size. And so uh, if you are a first century Jew, you have one of these. Jesus probably actually had one of these. Uh, you'd wear it underneath your cloak. It's very, very thin. Uh, and it usually had uh, tassels coming off of it, prayer tassels, tzitzits. Um, and so uh, whenever there's a representation of Jesus, he probably actually had those. If you watch The Chosen, they actually include it. It's really important. Um, and so they would have worn it. And so, but when they went to temple or went to synagogue to go pray, they would grab their, their talit, their, their prayer shawl, and they would put it over their, their backs. Now, the, the language here, room and door, are not exactly. It's like you go to your kind of enclosed space and, and you close it in. You, you would shut it. And so uh, that idiom is really just referring to prayer times that, where they would do this. That's what they would go and do. This is them shutting the door to their prayer closet or prayer room. It was a regular practice. It was an idiom that was used. Now, how secret is it when I do this? Right? And, and that's an important part of all this teaching because Jesus is like, do this in secret. And everybody's like, but like how? you just said they're going to know us by our good works and glorify their father. So he's not necessarily doing that. But if we were to like, kick our neighbor and be like, hey, check me out and go and pray then that would be a problem. And that's what I think Jesus is critiquing. He's like, look, just, just go and pray how you know how to pray. Like, you go to the synagogues, you go to the temple, you do these practices, do, pray. And we have a father who, who is, is there, who, who knows, knows what to, you were praying for. He, he knows your prayers. And then Jesus keeps going. Uh, verse 16, to talk about fasting and, and the same thing. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received a reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may be not, not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So once again, this is the actor analogy, this, this sort of practice that they would have had. So as I said uh, a few weeks ago, these uh, Greek and Roman theaters are actually quite large. They're, they're pretty significant if you've ever gotten to, to visit the ruins of them. And if you're sitting way in the back, you're going to have to be able to see the expression on actors' faces. We still do this to this day. Actors actually tend to wear way more makeup than they should because you want to see the expression on their faces. And we have mass and comedy and tragedy and stuff like that. Um, I know it's not the next slide. It's one of those slides. There we go. We, we have the sort of even representations of the sort of over-happy and over-sad sort of uh, representation. So they would have used makeup. They would have done all these things to represent a certain kind of characters in tragedy and comedy. And Jesus is saying, don't be like that. When you fast, you don't need to look all gloomy all the time and make sure everyone sees that you're experiencing hunger and, and you're contrite and all these kind. You don't need to do that. Just, just fast. You need to put on the performance, making sure everyone knows what you are doing. Don't be like the actors. They have the rewards. Everybody's going to notice them and clap them and applaud them for it. That's not what I'm calling you to do. And Jesus is after the heart of the issue not just the practices, because he seems to assume that they're going to do it. And not only that, but if you were a Pharisee, you had three major things that you would hearken on all the time to represent righteousness, and that was prayer, fasting, and, um, and almsgiving or generosity. And Jesus just attacked all three. Now, as we look at all three, which one does it seem like Jesus spends his most time on? Like just looking at a page, if you have a page in your Bible or your phone, which one does he seem to give his most attention to? Yeah, prayer, right? 
between prayer giving and, and fasting. We, we certainly get a larger section on, on prayer. So we're going to focus on that for the sake of today. Um, we will deal with fasting again. It will come up in Matthew again, particularly in a way that I think actually includes teaching on fasting as opposed to just saying, don't make it public. Uh, we'll get there. And we still have our monthly prayer call, or uh, not a prayer call, we still have our monthly fast here at Resonate. Um, we've removed the sort of digital prayer component of it. Um, we just never found a time that really worked for anybody. Uh, and so, um, but, but we will keep that going. And so in our bulletins, our Slack, things like that, we'll remind you the weeks of um, and maybe give you a few topics for fasting that day. But our hope is that we as a church would continue practicing fasting because it's like a lost art on many of us. But let's keep moving. And the other thing Jesus critiques is this sort of Gentile method of prayer. Verse 7, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, this is likely critiquing um, what is polytheism. Uh, in most polytheistic worldviews, which the Gentiles certainly had at the time, you have a lot of gods. And what those gods are doing is living their own lives and fighting with each other and doing all, there's all sorts of stuff happening in the heavens all the time. And humans are sort of almost afterthought often in the storylines. And uh, for, to be a Gentile who wants Apollo to bless your war or wants uh, the gods to bless your crops or whatever it is, you have to get their attention. And so what they would do is they would, they would have certain things. They would have certain noises they would do. They would have, try to speak the right incantation, incantations to get the gods' attentions. So they would speak and they would say, and they, they would hope that if they just said enough things, they would say the right thing to sort of unlock the key so that Persephone or whatever would pay attention to them in that moment. So they would just heap up words, hoping that the gods would hear something. And I think Jesus is reminding his followers, that's, that's not the God we have. Yahweh's not like that. When you pray, you're not trying to get his attention. You're not trying to specially unlock as if there's some secret phrase that Yahweh needs to hear in order to actually pay attention to you. Not only that, like he already has knowledge of, of your needs before you even go to him. Like that's how, that's how accessible he is. He, you don't even have to tell him. Like he knows your needs. And so Jesus is inviting his listeners in on this and then he speaks this Lord's Prayer. Now here's where this might be new Maybe controversial, I don't know. What if I told you when Jesus teaches on prayer here, he doesn't actually teach anything new? That perhaps what Jesus is actually bringing is a very common prayer that they would have prayed every day. Because at lunchtime in the Jewish life, they pray a prayer called the Amidah. They still pray to this day. And for a long time, we always thought the Amidah kind of came after Jesus' time, and that included some of the phrases that maybe Jesus and the Christians helped affect the, the formation of the Amidah. But we have since found newer and newer versions that go into BC, into before Jesus' time, that include just about every phrase that we encounter in the Lord's Prayer right now. So they're all over. Avenu Shabbat Shemayim, which is simply saying, Our Father, the one who dwells in heaven. And the idea of our father was super common in Jewish prayer language. I've heard pastor after pastor being like, well, Christians get to say our fathers and Jews didn't. That's, not, that's just not true. Jews do it all the time. Yakadesh Shemcha, which means your name is holy or hallowed be your name. Tamlech Melchechem Yahasem Yahaseh Bashayim uh, Avur Aretz, which is may your kingdom uh, come, 
as we do your will here on earth as it is done in heaven. And the Amidah would include multiple sections actually about God reigning as a king and coming and reigning. Um, and Rabbi Eliezer uh, actually would uh, rephrase it as, let your will be done in heaven above. Grant tranquility of spirit and reverence here below. Do that which is good in your sight. Or et lechem hu kenu talaenu heyom, which is blessed this year unto us, our Lord our God, together with every kind of produce, therefore, for our welfare. And so the Amidah actually has an expanded section where we thank God for his provision regularly. And some of that's around the years and the crops and the produce and things like that. Um, and ancient rabbis would constantly paraphrase the, this, this prayer. They would constantly kind of actually paraphrase and shorten it, uh, which we find in Jesus. But one of them would say, Oh God, the needs of your people are many. Their knowledge slender. Give every one of your creatures its daily bread and grant him his urgent needs. Or salech lanu avinu ki shatanu mechel lanu malkenu ki pashonu, which is forgive us our father for we have sinned, pardon us our king for we have rebelled. And so included in that is prayer of confession, this piece of it. And the neu mehera veonenu laman shemechna, which is redeem us speedily from our affliction or um, from our uh, trials and our temptations, if you will. Trials and temptations are equal um, for your name's sake. So deliver us from you. Um, and some will even say, um, and some of these are after Jesus' time. We haven't found them before, but deliver us from the evil one, cursed be he. So what do we do with the fact that we're finding out that perhaps the Lord's Prayer is not this new revolutionary way to pray? Because Jesus here he's teaching it as part of the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke, he actually teaches the Lord's Prayer as a response to his disciples saying, teach us to pray. What do we do with that? And I would say simply that Jesus is saying, you already know how to pray. Like, you pray every day. There's one prayer. Here, let me, let me remind you of that prayer. Here, let me give you the highlights, the things that I find important. And just Pray. The Gentiles are praying all this babbling, trying to unlock some special key to the God of the universe or their gods or whatever it is. But you're talking to a father that already knows your prayer. So when you pray, just pray. Like, you already do this every day. Something, there's no magical thing to unlock. There's something um, incantation that's going to get Yahweh's attention. Just pray. And guess what? It can be liturgical. Now, we're not the most liturgical church, but Jesus sure seems to be affirming liturgical practices by at least going, hey, you guys pray this prayer every day. Great, keep doing that. And there's nothing wrong with sort of liturgical and pre-written nature of prayer, of saying daily blessings, which were super common in their day, saying daily confession, of saying a daily thankfulness prayer, of having a ritual to our prayer lives. Now, if our prayer lives were only ritual, that can be a problem. And I think Jesus will showcase, particularly in the book of John, but in other books, that the sort of very personal nature of prayer is absolutely important too. But, but so is simply walking through sometimes ritual prayer out of a desire to continue to practice the art and, and the discipline of prayer. That's why books like Every Moment Holy or the Book of Common Prayer or the Founts of Heaven, or um, a value of vision, if you really love like beautiful Puritan prayers, to have these sort of regular practices of prayer. Like if you're like, I don't have a thriving prayer life, I don't know what to pray. Well, great. Here's some prayers of wonderful saints, or, or to practice the, the reading through the book of Psalms as a prayer life, and simply being that. 
that it doesn't have to be something special or magical. Like, when you sit down, hey, we call it a blessing when we sit down and eat food. You know it's already been blessed. Like, the fact that you have food on your table means blessing has happened, right? So we're giving thanks. And it, it's not a time necessarily to catch up on your quiet time, right? Thanks, God, for this food. Amen. It's cool. Great. It's wonderful. But to build into our lives this practice and routine of prayer and not making it complicated. And, and also a wonder is that this is a highly communal prayer that Jesus deals with. The Amidam is supposed to be prayed in groups of 10. Um, so uh, they would gather uh, midday other um, just cultural norms. They would gather a lot of men together and they would pray uh, this prayer together. They would have to do it in groups of 10. So there's something communal even built into Jesus' instructions. Now, so if this prayer is something that's very common, that they might have heard plenty of times and Jesus is saying, look, when, I, when you pray, just go and pray what you guys know. What's going to then be important is what maybe what Jesus adds to their daily prayer. Because something else is added in that's not as traditional for them. So here's a side by side. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Kingdom, this is our English translation. Kingdom come, it will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have been forgiven our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, what, what in sort of some of the Jewish language seems to be missing compared to the one on the left? Thematically. And there's little things all over. Anybody notice it? Well, why don't we jump to the next slide? It'll stick out a little more. There we go. So the one thing that Jesus adds that is not included in any 2,000 years of history of this prayer is actually the forgiveness of others, which is actually not that big of a concept within Jewish theology uh, as you would imagine. Um, Forgiveness was key to who God is. It is good to ask God for forgiveness. There were tons of practices built into the temple and tabernacle uh, that would be a reminder of our asking for forgiveness and the need for atonement. It was regular to ask God for forgiveness. It was good to ask God to forgive others. But the idea that we would practice forgiveness of other people is a bit of a foreign theological concept. Um, Not that they wouldn't care about reconciliation, not that they wouldn't care about restitution, but the actual practice of forgiving one another is, is a bit of a uh, outside the box uh, to this day. And, and so that's why uh, David, when he has an affair, could say, God against you and you alone have I sinned. Not, hey, I need to go seek forgiveness from all these people. Um, but it's you and you alone. And before you think, Chris, are you sure like this is really where it is? Like this is what we should focus on. Of all the things in Jesus' in Jesus's prayer here, of all the things he's highlighted, these wonderful, really robust things, what does he then go, let me talk about one part of this again? What does he focus on? Forgiveness, right? Verse 14. So he finishes the Lord's Prayer, and it says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive their trespasses, your trespasses. So he doesn't focus on our Father. He doesn't focus on the kingdom come or daily bread or anything like that. But he does stop and go, Let's talk about forgiveness for a moment before I move on to fasting. As if to say, look, if you are going to pray, if you are going to pray this wonderful prayer that you guys pray every day and ask for God's kingdom to come on earth as in heaven, then you need to know what God's actually at work and doing right now, which is the work of forgiving others. And this, once again, is actually continuing the renovation of the heart teaching that I think the whole Sermon on the Mount is actually after. 
The whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is not so that we can have this wonderful individual relationship with Jesus. So much of it is this relational part and about our inner self, how we relate to others, how we feel about others, what our heart is actually doing. Because look, we can reconcile without a changed heart, I think. We can seek restitution, certainly, without a changed heart. But to forgive others requires a a heart change, a renovation. And Jesus will hear, and in multiple parables coming up, will connect the idea of the forgiveness of God himself with our understanding of how we practice forgiveness. It will be a big teaching for Jesus to deal with multiple times as we go. So I want to unpack the forgiveness piece a little further. So if most of you are hoping for a teaching on prayer, what I think Jesus is after is actually teaching on this. So let me say what forgiveness is not first, because too much of the church, I think, uses it to probably cause more problems than, than is necessary. First, forgiveness is not saying the wrong doesn't matter or it's trivial. Sometimes it is. I don't want to say that, but, but sometimes, sometimes we have been hurt and wounded and abused deeply. And to talk about forgiveness as, hey, you just need to forgive that person. Hey, your abuser from your childhood, just forgive them. I think it's wrong. What happened to you is not a little deal. And if you are wronged, what happened to you is not okay. And that's why this process actually matters. Forgiveness is not a surface practice of just telling someone that you forgive them. It's so much deeper. And when there's deep wounding, there's a deep need for a work on your heart. Forgiveness is not saying that there's not consequences for the wrong. Sometimes there is. But there are some things that are so deeply wounded that there are consequences. Like I have wronged people in my life. I have hurt other people. And perhaps they've forgiven me, but that doesn't mean the pain went away. That doesn't mean that our relationship is exactly the same. It doesn't mean there's not some restitution or repairing of those things. That that all comes on the tail end. Forgiveness is not saying that you don't call the police or you don't leave a situation either. I've heard too much of the church at times use forgiveness card uh, to instruct people to go back to their abuser again. And that's not okay. And I I want to be very clear here, particularly because I know the stats of this. If he is hitting you, if he is hitting your children, you leave And the church should be the place that facilitates that departure with safety and that it's done well. I'm not saying divorce. I'm not saying, I'm simply saying safety matters first. If that's happening, let us participate with you in that process. We should be the ones to stand up and to help you. Forgiveness is not saying that you don't have appropriate boundaries. How many of us maybe have parents or family members or a boss or acquaintance, you know, whoever, and their behavior is destructive and inappropriate, and you've tried to work through it, but it's still destructive and inappropriate over and over. And forgiveness can still include saying, look, you know what, I'm not going to be home this Christmas or this Easter or whatever. Because every time you speak to me or to my spouse or to my children, you do so in an inappropriate way, and I will not be subjecting us to that right now. This is something to be discerned in community. I think it's important to have healthy community process that with you or a counselor or something like that. But to say, look, I will forgive you and I want to seek a healthy relationship with you. 
But because of your behavior, here's the boundaries that are deemed probably appropriate and how this can look. And if you step outside those boundaries, then I need to remove myself from the situation. And hear me, that actually facilitates forgiveness more than anything else. It actually goes, look, I I want to pursue forgiveness with you, but here are the appropriate things that we don't just keep stepping into this destructive behavior where I have to constantly keep forgiving you over and over and over and over and over. Because hear me, as a dog, the scripture, as a dog returns to the vomit, the fool returns to its folly. And sometimes we can't work through forgiveness when we're constantly walking back into the destructive situation without that person actually also being reformed by our process of forgiveness with them. So what is forgiveness then, if that's what it's not? And sometimes stories help us. Uh, we'll walk through a Tim Keller quote, but sometimes we just hear the stories, you're like, yes. And they're crazy and miraculous. Like Corey Ten Boom. I mean, you have someone that was captured by the Nazis, her whole family, just in the worst of conditions with bugs and everything as she was a captor. She watched her family get killed. And eventually she was released uh, at the end of the war and um, would tell her story. And one time she was telling the story and one of her captors was in the audience and it sent it to her mind, just like anybody that experienced that kind of trauma, sent her mind back there. The pile of clothes of people who would not be returning. The time she had to parade naked in front of the captors, much to her shame. The loss of her family all came back. And she didn't know whether this guard would recognize her, but she talked about the prison that she was in, and he came up after the service saying, I was in that prison as a soldier. I've since become a Christian, and I repent of my ways, and I seek your forgiveness. And what a powerful moment. And Corey Ten Boom, who had been preaching on forgiveness that day, had to wonder, all right, can I do the thing I've actually been called to do? Can I forgive this Nazi guard, and just the weight of that decision. That's why I love this killer quote that talks about forgiveness. He says, forgiveness means refusing to make them pay for what they did. However, to refrain from lashing out at someone when you want to do so with all your being is agony. It is a form of suffering. You not only suffer the original loss of happiness, reputation, opportunity, but now you forgo the consolation of inflicting the same on them, and you are absorbing the debt. So yes, the first thing you do is end the vengeance cycle, that it's not, hey, you did this to me, so I got to get you back, which sometimes in that moment is the most satisfying thing possible, but is letting go of that. But there's more than that. It's not only putting a stop, but also recognizing that someone has to absorb the debt itself. There's a story in Matthew 18, and we'll get there in like three years, who knows. Um, And Jesus tells a parable of this king, and he has a subject of him that has racked up a debt. Now, the way the language works in that is like saying he's racked up a a debt of like a gazillion dollars. It is like meant to be the most extreme number that the storyteller can, that Jesus can tell as he tells the story. And he's got a gazillion dollars worth of debt, so there's no way he's ever going to repay it. And the king ultimately forgives the subject of the debt. And, and the other guy doesn't understand forgiveness, and we'll get to that story when we get to it. But that gazillion dollars has to be absorbed. 
right? Where does the debt go? It's not like it's a write-off. That's not how write-offs work. It's just, it, it doesn't work that way. The debt doesn't just disappear. Because that gazillion dollars was actually the king's. It was on loan, but it's the king's. He doesn't get it back. He absorbs the debt. And there is, hear me, there is a bunch of pain. And just ending the vengeance cycle does not mean that there's not more work to do and more suffering that has to be walked through. Like, hear, hear me, some of us will have to go through therapy we never should have gone through. And what was done to you is not right. It was evil. It was dark. It's not okay. But if we want to participate in the work of the kingdom, we are going to have to walk through the work of forgiveness. And you're going to have to absorb some of the wrong that you should never have had carried in the first place. Keller will continue. He says this, taking the cost of it completely on yourself instead of taking it out on the other person. It hurts terribly. Many many people would say it feels like a kind of death. Now, absorbing forgiveness that feels like death should sound like someone to us. Because it's certainly what Jesus did. And actually invites his followers to do the same. First Peter 2. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Or Colossians 1. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. That Jesus came, yes, certainly to die for our sins, but also to suffer and to show us how to suffer and continuing to do, um, and in so actually continue the work that he has started. Hear me, Jesus did not suffer so that you don't have to suffer. That's prosperity gospel. Jesus came to suffer to also teach us what suffering well in light of his kingdom actually looks like. And as Hebrews will go on to say, that's a process, through that process, we are also brought to glory. Something about the work of the kingdom where forgiveness is just central, partly because of what it does in our hearts. But through that process of suffering and the art of forgiveness, that we are like our, our God. We are like Jesus. And through that, we are also made more complete or more whole by it. I will say, I follow Jesus more closely because of deep wounds that I've had to work through in forgiving others. Where it says, I want to know Christ and his sufferings. And that's actually lived out sometimes in how we have to work to forgive others. Keller finishes with this. Yes, but it is a death that leads to resurrection instead of a lifelong living death of bitterness and cynicism. No one just forgives if the evil is serious. And everyone who forgives great evil goes through what feels like a death. But there's a resurrection on the other side. There's nails and blood and sweat and tears, but it bears the sin of that moment, and it's costly. But there's something greater on the other side. And if we're going to sit there and say, thy kingdom come, to about Jesus' kingdom, that its centerpiece is the forgiveness of sins, then we better be engaging in the work of forgiveness ourselves because it's showcasing the king that's coming. And hear me, it's also about our future. It's an opportunity to let the future be full of potential and possibility instead of being defined always by our past. 
Forgiveness does nothing with our past. It doesn't change it. (laughs) The hurt that happened, the wounds that are there, are there. But forgiveness does change the future. Of all the wrongs that have been committed, they don't have to define what comes next for us. And so forgiveness is not just about forgiving them, but about us. Unforgiveness destroys us inside. And there's no freedom in that. But there's also a future for the person. It's still okay to do boundaries. It's still okay to slow down reconciliation in that process. It does not have to be immediate. It's still essential, though, to continue to work through forgiveness. But the things that we also engage in is also giving the other person the potential for God to work in them. You don't think that soldier in that moment interacting with Corrie ten Boom doesn't have a huge moment of understanding God's forgiveness if she stands there and says, you know what, I forgive you too. It doesn't work in the other person of showcasing the very gospel we proclaim. That we have a great God who forgave us of the deepest of all wrongs and sins. And he took it and absorbed it on the cross. To much great suffering, to much great pain, And invites us into that work. And as we continue on the Sermon on the Mount, gosh, Jesus so often is chasing after how we, we actually relate, how his community actually relates to the world, and how hard it actually is, and why we all need new hearts that come by faith to actually accomplish this. We need the Holy Spirit. We need God's work all the time and a reminder of the God we have. And so I, I want to give us just a moment of time at some point, this, some of this stuff should sound really impossible. Some of you have been hurt incredibly deeply. You've been abused. You've been raped. You've been treated harshly by family. You have words that still sting to this day that have been spoken to you that just make you feel so little sometimes. So many in this room. And the idea of forgiveness feels so far off the table. And we need the Spirit. This isn't just pull up your bootstraps and get to the work of forgiveness. It is, gosh, get to your knees. Trust the Holy Spirit to start changing our hearts. Because this isn't our own strength that's going to accomplish some of this. It's remembering the one who practiced the greatest forgiveness and trusting in that power. And so I'm going to invite us now to to do that, to just take a moment of silence. Because at some point as I've been preaching, maybe there's a person, maybe there's something that's come to your mind. And now might be a moment to just go, Holy Spirit, I don't know how. I don't know how forgiveness will happen. I don't know the wisdom of how to forgive this person and do so in a way that I think is good and right. And Holy Spirit, I need your help. So may we take a moment and ask the Spirit to help us. So God, as we ponder forgiveness, may our eyes constantly be on your cross, on your Son who, while dying, still said, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. God, may we see in you the one who's conquered over all offenses, that we were rebels, We were traitors. 
and we sinned greatly against you. Yet through your death, you, you brought us back. You forgave and reconciled us. You conquered over those things. And then you put your spirit in us and called us to partner with you in the restoring and reconciling work you were doing. Central to that, God, is your forgiveness and how we forgive others. Help us to see the storytelling that forgiveness has of a God who can forgive a gazillion dollars worth of sin. That we come to your throne and instead of being fearful, we can come in boldness and confidence knowing that there's great mercy. And you invite us into that wonderful work. May we heed your warnings about our unforgiveness and may we trust in your spirit to continue to draw that out of us as painful and as hard and as complicated as most that can be. Amen.